la 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 You're listening to Silver Threads, the podcast celebrating 25 years of the Hares and Hyenas bookstore in Fitzroy, Melbourne. Supported by the UNESCO City of Literature Known Bookshops Fund, in association with the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives, and in partnership with Melbourne Library Service. Warning, the following program contains explicit content and themes. Hello, you're listening to episode four of the Silver Threads podcast. In this episode, we'll be listening to a reading from legendary queer writer and activist Joan Nessel. A proud out lesbian, spokeswoman for Butch Femme Desire and a tireless freedom fighter, Joan laid the groundwork for the lesbian, gay and transgender movements of today by claiming her right to her own sexual identity at a time when to do so made her a figure of controversy. In 1973, a group of us worried about the disappearing of even older lesbian cultural artifacts and lesbian community stories, none of whom were librarians or archivists, decided to form something called the Lesbian Herstory Archives. And this is the story of it. The Will to Remember, My Journey with the Lesbian Herstory Archives. For the marginalized, remembering is an act of will, a conscious battle against ordained emptiness. For gay people, remembering is an act of alchemy, the transformation of dirty jokes, limp wrists, a wetted pinky drawn over the eyebrow into bodies loved, communities liberated. When Albert Memmi wrote the following passage in 1967, he was speaking as a Tunisian Jew who had an intimate understanding of both cultural exile and cultural power. His words. The colonized draw less and less from their past. The colonizer never even recognized they had one. Everyone knows that the commoner whose origins are unknown has no history. Let us ask the colonized herself. Who are her folk heroes, her great popular leaders, her sages? At most, she may be able to give us a few names, and then I would think, oh, yes, Sappho and Gertrude Stein. In complete disarray, and fewer and fewer as one goes down the generations, the colonized seems condemned to lose her memory. End of Memmi. When I read those words in 1971, I knew he was speaking for me as well. The politics of culture is a very complex thing, filled with opportunities for acceptance that can turn in an instant to moments of betrayal of self and community. Deprivation of cultural recognition makes one hungry, makes one yearn for the center. But for those who have lived in a ghetto of any kind, The matter is not one of simple exchange of marginality for normalization. In 1992, I was asked to speak in an older woman's educational forum at Bryn Mawr College. Three of us from differing backgrounds had been asked to address the themes of diversity, silence, marginality, and danger. 
I knew I'd been asked to be part of this event because of my work with the Lesbian History Archives, and in my preparation I had been scribbling down random thoughts and disturbing excerpts from the daily newspapers, as I usually do when some idea not yet clearly expressed is nibbling at my mind. For some time I had been wondering about what the national concern for diversity actually meant when it applied to gay people. I thought I had found some clues. From the New York Times, March 2, 1992, Jews debate the issue of gay clergy members. From the New York Times, April 9, 1992, the bishops issued the third draft of a letter on women calling for, on women calling for lesbians to practice chastity. From the same newspaper, April 12, 1992, examples abound of subjects were very much discussed by inset, insiders on the pro-tennis circus, circuit, but publicly taboo, ranging from the gay subculture on the women's tour to drug abuse on the men's. No one wanted to spread scandal. While I applauded the concern with diversity, these ongoing cultural skirmishes made me suspicious. How does a woman who has lived her life as what most societies, including this one, and I was speaking of America in the 70s and 80s, call a sexual deviant, leave the cultural place that has been her home for over 40 years? How does she decide what to take with her and what to leave behind, what to remember and what to forget? For this is the challenge we face when we are asked to believe that the society around us is really changing, that marginal voices are being asked to join a chorus of equitable inclusion. As a queer woman, and I use that term because I came to my se sexual and cultural self in the working-class bars of Greenwich Village in the 1950s and 60s, and there I was schooled in queer survival, I am not convinced that the calls for inclusion really include me or my community in our full cultural expression. I could pass as a woman, even as a feminist, though respect for this profound way of seeing the world is getting more difficult to come by. But as a lesbian who insists on the importance of her sexual choices, I do not feel on safe ground. I know how to live on the shifting terrain of the margin, for there we knew more than the intruders, but I move very cautiously into the new territory that is being offered. Perhaps younger women will feel more at ease, more trusting of this new place, but they will not have the same memories, the same fears of betrayal, the same sense of comrades left at the border who could not cross over. I just have to interrupt to say this piece was written, this is from um, A Fragile Union that came out in 1991. So this piece was written in the 80s, and I think of the word borders and how, how as a queer woman, I always did see borders, but now the word um, has such resonances in 2016. The same fears of betrayal, the same sense of comrades left at the border who could not cross over. How do I remain true to Maria, the bartender for Barcelona, who protected me from police entrapment in the early 1960s? Or to Rachel, the lesbian whore who lay in my arms dreaming of a kinder world? Or the butch women I, women I saw stripped by the police in front of their lovers? 
These actions happened in marginal places, the reserves on which we were allowed to touch or dance or strut until someone decided enough of these freaks and took our fragile freedoms away. But this old country, as Baldwin called his historical ghetto, the Jim Crow-ridden American South, is a complex and paradoxical place. I never want my lesbian daughters to have to find each other in bars where police brutality is rampant, to dance in a public place where a bouncer measures the distance between the partners to make sure no parts of the body are touching. I never want their clitoris and nipples measured by doctors convinced that lesbians are hormonal abnormalities, as was done in the 30s and 40s, 1930s and 40s. And yet, while I know that living in the pre-liberation gay ghetto endangered my life, remembering it gives me life. My journey with the Lesbian Hersier archives can be told in two ways. The factual development of a vision into a building filled with the artifacts of lesbian life. Or the interior movement from my sense as a person deprived of historical memory to one glorying in the possibility of it. The journey from deprivation into plentitude is how I have put it on endless archives tours. It is also a journey from silence into speech, from shame into revelation. From the Archives Visitors Book, 1979. For two days I have been thinking up wise and pithy things that I should include. No dice. So perhaps the honest will work better. Only once before have I I felt like I've come home. This is the second time. I never thought I would be that lucky again, and I realize it is my right to come home to the world. Thanks to you and all the lives in this room for showing me that right, Judy. One of the first cultural goals of the Archives Project was to salvage secrets, to stop the destruction of letters and photographs, to rescue the documents of our desire from family and cultural devaluation. At almost every presentation of the archive slideshow, a woman would tell us a tale of loss, of a family member destroying diaries or burning letters. Time and time again, a woman would confide in us how she had destroyed records of her early homoerotic life, whether it was her stash of 1950s lesbian paperbacks, the first cultural product she had ever found that testified to a public lesbian world, or the passionate outpourings of young love. I will never forget the moments of understanding that occurred, of relief and sometimes of mourning, when an older woman accepted the possibility that acts she had considered shameful for so long could be seen in another way, could be seen as cherished cultural moments in a community's history. In the early 1970s, this acceptance of another context for the remembered touch was a pure act of will. In the early years of the archives, Deborah Adel and I scoured small town library and church book sale tables, often finding a rare lesbian novel that had been selected for throwaway. In the mail, we would often get posters and other memorabilia that had been saved from trash heaps. 
So many times did this reversal of cultural fortune happen that we publicly spoke about transforming what this society considered garbage into a people's history. The retrieved documents in their often coded and yet staunch way challenge the prevailing historical view of the pathology of same-sex love. Now I understand that these acts of retrieval were also personal moments of reconstitution for me. An excerpt from a love letter, circa 1920, found in a Greenwich Village gutter after the family had cleaned out the apartment of Eleanor C., a labor educator of the 30s and 40s. And this is the actual text of the letter. This is a very quiet letter, Eleanor, dear, and you won't read it when you are dashing off somewhere in a hurry, will you, please? Thursday night, best beloved. I'm writing by the light of the two tall candles on my desk with the flamey chrysanthemums you arrange before me. It's such a lovely soft glow, and I'm glad because this is a candlelight letter. I wish you could know what a wonderful person you are, Eleanor, darling, and what joy your, lit your letter written last night gave me. Not the part about me. That is pitifully wrong and only a standard for me to measure up to. But you make it all so wonderful and are clear about it all. But I could never say so, even in incoherent fashion. And so many times back of my nobler resolve, I am just plain selfish about wanting you to look at and talk to. And I'm not afraid, dear. I know our love will help, oh, so much and not hinder. It never does that, not even in my weakest moments. The candles are burning low, dear heart, and the world is very beautiful and still outside. And I am so, oh, so happy that I know you and love you. May God bless you through all time, Alice. And we found that. We call it the gutter letter. My history with the growth of the archives directly parallels my involvement with gay liberation and lesbian feminism. Just as my queer past was constructed by social judgments and culturally restrictive politics, my time of hope was hewn out of the glory of public possibilities. The early 1970s, so deeply influenced by the progressive movements of the 60s, was a time when some constructed a new social self. In 1972, a few of us who worked in or were being educated by the city university system of New York, and that's the free college system, people like Martin Duberman and Seymour Kleinberg founded an organization called the Gay Academic Union, GAU. This was how we did things back then. If there was a problem of lesbian or gay exclusion or misrepresentation, we sat down in a circle and came up with an organization to address it. Concerned with the plight of gay students and teachers in high schools and colleges, the GAU became a rallying place for early gay scholarship and battles against isolation and homophobia in the educational system. The Lesbian History Archives was conceived in discussions with members of my GAU consciousness raising group, women like Deborah Adel, who was to become my first lesbian feminist lover, as well as co-founder of the archives, Julia Penelope Stanley, whom I had known in the old days, and whose version of radical feminism I would come to vehemently oppose, but we worked together, her lover Sally, and Pamela, a political lesbian. 
here in an embryonic form where the streams of consciousness of the 70s, ranging from old-time femme to gay liberation politics to lesbian separatism to lesbian as a political identification without erotic significance. And here also was the beginning of the discourse about memory, history, and sexuality that would keep me in its throes for the next 30 years. In the archive statement of purpose, our need for cultural autonomy rings out loud and clear. From the archives newsletter number one, 1975, and I had that with me the other night at Harris and Hyenas, the original. The lesbian history archives exist to gather and preserve records of lesbian lives and activities so that future generations will have ready access to materials relevant to their lives. <clears throat> the process of gathering this material will also serve to uncover and collect our herstory denied to us previously by patriarchal historians in the interests of the culture which, which they serve. The existence of these archives will enable us to analyze and reevaluate the lesbian experience. We also anticipate that the existence of these archives will encourage lesbians to record their experiences in order to formulate our living history. And of course, you notice the play on history to history. So, the archives, with its collect, this is speaking uh, in real time, the archives, with its collection of lesbians speaking for themselves in a myriad of ways, was to be our answer to the medical, legal, and religious colonization of our lives. In 1974, the Lesbian Hersey Archives took up its home in the large apartment I shared with Deborah Adel. My relationship with Deborah was a living symbol of the archives' cultural compassion. She, shaped by the 70s, never flinched at my tales of the bars, at my need to find the voices and images of the community that had given me life, and to make sure that the artifacts of this earlier lesbian time had a home. The generosity of Deborah's historical and psychological Im imagination allowed me to work out ways to give a place of honor to, life I, to the life I had lived on the margins of American society. While we worked to change the norms that same society of that same society by creating the very notion of lesbian and gay history. I used the archives newsletter to express my concern about the kind of history we were about to create and to do battle with the more severe lesbian feminists who were so judgmental of my pre-liberation butch femme community. Using all the tools of liber liberatory politics, I was attempting to hold on to a place I knew of, knew of as home, as home and to let it go all at the same time. From the archives newsletter number seven, 1981. If we ask decorous questions of history, we will get a genteel history. If we assume that because sex was a secret, it did not exist, we will get a sexless history. If we assume that in periods of oppression, lesbians lost their autonomy and acted as victims only, we destroy not only history, but lives. For many years, the psychologists told us we were both emotionally and physically deviant. They measured our nipples and clitorises to chart our queerness. They talked about how we wanted to be men and how our sexual styles were pathetic imitations of the real thing. And all along, under this barrage of hatred and fear, we loved. 
They told us we should hate ourselves, and sometimes we did. But we were also angry, resilient, and creative. And most of all, we're lesbian women, revolutionizing each of these terms. We create history as much as we discover it. What we call history becomes history. And since this is a naming time, we must be on guard against our own class prejudices and discomforts. If close friends and devoted companions are to be part of lesbian history, so must be also the lesbians of the 50s, who left no doubt about their sexuality or their courage. And back to the essay. Because of my own experience with the criminalizing 1950s, I felt it was essential that the archives not become a hand-picked collection of respectable lesbian role models. This emphasis on inclusiveness made the archives a focus of controversy. Yes, we wanted the papers of Samoa, the first national public S&M group. Yes, we wanted the diary of a lesbian prostitute. Yes, we would treasure the pasties of a lesbian stripper. Yes, we wanted collections of women with women pornography. I knew that a memory fashioned to the prevailing precepts of one time, no matter how profound that time may be, would never be complex enough, never filled with wonders enough to be the living needed gift to the unknown future that we all wanted this collection to be. Now, hard hats and hobnail boots sit next, sit next to pasties and glossy prints of a famous lesbian stripper of the 1940s. They, in turn, are joined by the lavender menace t-shirt of the now rebellion in the 1970s. Photographs of bar patrons of the 1930s are in the same room as images from the Michigan Women's Music Festival, a DOB, Daughters of Belize, which was the first lesbian civil rights group in America. A certificate of organization, an artifact from the late 1950s, shares a shelf with, les with a lesbian Avengers poster, an artifact from the urban 1990s. A copy of Women Loving Women, the manifesto of the early days of lesbian feminism, lies next to an album co cover featuring the smiling, boyish face of Billy Tipton, the jazz musician who was born a woman but passed as a man for most of his life. This is the history I wanted— a conversation of possibilities, of lineages, of contradictions. Throughout my intimate life with the archives, for the 20 years or so that it filled my apartment with its file cabinets and bookshelves, its endless stream of visitors, I was always looking for icons of resistance. I found them in the out-of-print books, the oral history tapes, old copies of homophile publications like Vice Versa and the latter, snapshots and snatches of conversation between visitors. Stories came to me. The story of the young butch woman in the 1950s who always sewed a piece of lace on her socks before she went to the bars so the police would not arrest her for transvestism. The story of the sophisticated femme who carried her dildo in a satin purse. So when she left the bar with her chosen woman of the night, she knew the woman would be she knew the woman would be well pleased, or she knew she would be well pleased. The story of the young Jewish woman who had read The Well of Loneliness in Polish before she was taken into the concentration camps. That book helped me to survive. I wanted to live long enough to kiss a woman, she told me one night while we sat at my dining room table having a cup of tea. 
These stories filled my heart. They healed and educated me and changed for me forever that which I call history. They've become the tropes of my writing, the proclamation of the lesbian spirit that I repeat over and over. They are my jewels of discovery, the riches that lay beneath that marginalized land. From the Archives Newsletter, number 3, 1976. Summer was an interesting time for the Archives, with a record number of visitors, including women from California, England, and Italy. I found that whether I was talking with lesbians from Manhattan or Europe, the concern expressed for the preservation of our history creates an energy that whisks the archives from the past into our daily lives. There is motivation and activity everywhere. In London, women are producing street theater in the Punch and Judy tradition to support the Wages for Houseware campaign. In Italy, lesbian groups are beginning to meet in the high schools. Some of our visitors organized lesbian centers are responsible for coordinating such noble events as the lesbian notable events as the lesbian history exploration near Los Angeles. Of course, in many cases, their enthusiasm is closer to home, taking the shape of, uh, hello, I just found out that the archives is a few blocks away and I'd like to, like to stop by tomorrow. This summer brought a feeling of universal lesbian power, women united in the celebration and adventure of pursuing our, our identity. And that was Valerie one, Valerie, one of the workers with the archives. After Deborah and I separated and Judith Swartz, who had become part of the Archives Collective in the late 1970s, moved out of the apartment, I was left alone with this huge collection of memory in which the past and present sat cheek to cheek with each other. I felt this aloneness, particularly after Thursday night work groups, when the many women who volunteered to work with the collection would take their leave, several rushing off to the subways and buses that carried them to Brooklyn. I would walk through the apartment, past the boxes and piles of clippings, wondering at what my life had become. Could these gathered voices keep my own alive? Could these tales of resistance and desperation, of love and the loss of it, of gender construction and sexual adventuring, change forever the loneliness of our cultural exile, of my own life? From the Visitor's Book, 1983. I am here among women who breathe softly in my ear, who speak gently in a voice that will not be stilled. I am here in a cradle or a womb or a lap, on a knee that is shapely under my thigh, leaving the impression that I will never be alone. I am here to remember faces I have never seen before, and I do. Love, Jew Gomez. And Jew Gomez is a wonderful... Uh, American lesbian poet and playwright and activist who's still working. 29 years have passed since I started this journey to find a public face for lesbian memory. When I look over the archives newsletters of the 1970s, I can see how the discourse has changed. The word identity, so popular in that decade, is more complicated now, more challenged in its implications. Transgender and passing women's history is no longer an orphan child of the movement, and no one need apologize any longer for an interest in butch femme or leather communities, at least within the confines of our own queer movement. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans folk history are now thriving concerns, with both public and private institutions undertaking their own collections. 
The success of queer theory on college campuses has ensured, at least for now, and this again was the 70s, 80s, a continuing flow of published and cultural discussion. When the New York Public Library opened its gay and lesbian history exhibit a few years ago in a cocktail party atmosphere, I knew another time had come, and I'd feared for the life of my grassroots dream. As I toured the exhibit, one to which the lesbian history archives had contributed, I kept thinking of the first time I'd ever tried to find out about my queer self. I was a high school senior, and I wanted to do a research paper on homosexuality. The year was 1957. My teacher had told us about the world-renowned library on Fifth Avenue, so I made my way to the institution guarded by its two ageless stone lions. Too ashamed to ask a librarian about my topic, I toured the endless rows of wooden card catalog cabinets until I found the letter H. I pulled out the long, narrow drawer and flipped through the time-worn cards. Finally, my heart beating, I found the word homosexual, followed by a dash and then the word C, deviancy, and next to this C, pathology, with suggested subcategories of prisons and mental institutions. I never wrote that paper. But years later, remembering that journey of self-hatred and strengthened by my marginalized culture, I helped create in the same institution that had played such a powerful role in our cultural disenfranchisement another story of same-sex love, one that recognized not only our humanity, but also our power of choice of self-determination. In 1993, the archives moved into a three-story limestone building where it still is, in the Park Slope section of Brooklyn, New York. Over 200 volunteers, including lesbian architects and carpenters, worked for a year to prepare the building for its new life. The core group of coordinators who are responsible for the daily life of the collection has expanded to include over 20 women, many of whom are archivists and librarians. In June of 1996, we celebrated with our larger communities the burning of our mortgage, the accomplishment of a grassroots miracle. I am no longer the caretaker of the collection. I no longer sit at the endless bi-monthly meetings where women slosh through the grinding demands of tours, research questions, collection, building, workdays. When I can, I take a car service to this Brooklyn home, and I sometimes have to ask a woman, I do not know what she is doing or where something is. After giving a tour, when the house is silent, I walk through the collection. I look into closets to see if old friends are still there, like the army uniform worn by a lesbian woman who worked in Vietnam as a medic or the ripped leather jacket with studs on the back spelling out Dyke Tactics, the name of an early Zap protest group from Philadelphia. I push a book back into place, or stare into the face of a friend who now lives beyond her death in this home of memory. And I know that sometime I, too, will be returned to where I came from, to this place of cherished difference. When I close the door behind me, I often just stand on the step, marveling at the solidity of the home we have created, and solid it had better be. From the New York Times, July 7, 1998, 
Mr. Craig, the organizer of Greenville, South Carolina Citizens for Traditional Family Values, said he believed that homosexuality was demonic and a stench in the nostrils of God. Back to a restricted country. And these are some small pieces I wrote in pure appreciation of what the people in my lesbian life. Play, my darling, play. The sun came up hot and sharp over the Truro Hills, and the two middle-aged women were up early to greet it. Let's do today, the blonde one said to the dark one. After a quick breakfast, they donned their riding gear, shorts, t-shirts that pictured a big T-shirts that pictured a big wo- pictured big women holding their bikes up to the sky, gloves cut off cut off at the knuckles, sweatshirts wrapped around their shoulders. Outside their rented cottage, they stood for a moment, breathing in the pine-scented air, feeling for their bodies relax into the day, feeling their bodies relax into the day. Their steeds were resting against the side wall of their two-week home, the sun already glinting off the handlebars. Come on, girl. Now it was time to put on the helmets, the white domes striped with red, signaling that this was to be a mighty day. Water bottles were attached to the sidebars. Small tools were stored in the little black bags that rode under the seats. The ties crunched as the two women mounted and moved slowly over the mixture of broken shells and sand that was their driveway. Highway 6 was still quiet, but the morning air was alive with summer life. The seagulls swooped overhead, making their way to the ocean, which lay just behind the cliffs. The beach roses, clinging to the gray weathered fences, embraced the new day with open petals and crisp pink colors. The wind was a rider's friend, just strong enough to cool their shoulders. No longer young, not often free, the two women slowly built up speed. Soon they found the abandoned railroad bed that had been turned into a 26-mile pathway for adventurers such as themselves. For as far as they could go, the two would travel through the salt ponds and scrub pine forests, through flower-sprinkled meadows, and past an old harbor that carried the memory of New England whaling boats and seamen's courage. Their city muscles would find new strength, Each mile, each deep breath would open another tired place, and though their bodies would work hard and long, their spirits would soar into the sun. And that was written um, to honor Deborah Adel, who worked so hard and is still with the archives. And finally, the last piece. It's called Hope. Wearing my voluminous flannel nightgown, I knelt before the small wood-burning stove, trying to see why the fire was so fragile. I felt huge and awkward in that position, aware of my rump and falling breasts, but the cold night air demanded that the fire be encouraged to burn at a brisker pace. My younger lover, small and tight in her body, sat on the couch watching me. I did not like what I thought she saw, I did not like the bigness of my ass, the weight of my body on my knees. And just as I worked very hard to accept my lack of appeal, she said in a low, firm voice, you look so fuckable that way. 
I froze, caught in that moment of self-hatred by the clarity of her desire. I stopped all movement, awed once again by the possibilities of life. I knew she was walking toward me. I felt her stand behind me, felt her hand shape my nightgown to my curves. I heard her breath come quicker, and still I did not move. She grew impatient and reached under the gown, piling up its lengths on her arm like a fisherman pulling in his nets. And then, against all my fear, she entered me. The fire blazed up, and so did my hope, as I finally left the burden behind me and rode her hand with all the grace love had ever given me.